Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto, and you're listening to the series Paul and His Communities. We're into the final two episodes of this series, and in these two episodes, including today's episode, we'll be looking at legacies of Paul. We'll be turning from the actual letters of Paul that we've been dealing with. Romans represents the latest letter we have from Paul himself. And now we're turning to the ways in which Paul was interpreted after he was gone, and the ways in which Paul's memory is used and Paul's authority is used within particular debates within Christianity. Today we will use as a case study the pastoral epistles on the one hand, the pastoral epistles are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus that did end up in the New Testament, and on the other hand the Acts of Paul and Thecla. The former, the pastoral epistles, is a set of letters that claim to be written by Paul and we'll soon see they're an example of pseudonymous writings. However, in the process, they portray Paul. They present a Paul with certain opinions on a variety of issues, including a Paul, a portrait of Paul, who says women should be silent in the churches. On the other hand is the Acts of Paul and Thecla. This is what you could call an early Christian novel. A story that nonetheless once again portrays Paul. Paul is an important character in the storyline. And alongside Paul is this woman, Thecla. And so once again we have a portrayal of Paul's opinion on certain subjects in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, including Paul's opinion on the position or leadership of women within groups of Jesus followers. And we'll see that the position of women in the communities that use the Acts of Paul and Thecla may have been quite different, contrasting to the communities that were making use of the pastoral epistles. And so today we're getting into what we can call, and what Dennis MacDonald has called, the battle for Paul after Paul's death, where different Christian authors who have differing interpretations of Paul are trying to express what they feel Paul would say if he were still around. However, these different interpreters have very different interpretations quite often. And so we're getting a glimpse into diversity within early Christianity by looking at the Acts of Paul and Thecla on the one hand and the pastoral epistles on the issue of women's leadership. Today's episode just begins to introduce this. We talk a little bit about each of these documents, give a sense of what type of writing they are, when they date from, and where they come from. Namely, both of them come from Asia Minor. And so they represent different types of Christianity, you could say, in Asia Minor. Today we also begin to get into the question of how did Greeks and Romans, at least some Greeks and Romans, who began to know about the Christians, how did they view Christianity on the issue of women? And we'll see that one of the main criticisms of Christianity from the outside is precisely on things relating to women and the position of women within Christianity and relating to the household and how Christians conceived of the household. We're dealing with group society issues here and we're dealing with what family values were within the Greco-Roman world and how certain Christian groups defined their family values in similar ways to other Greeks and Romans, alleviating tensions between insiders and outsiders, and how other Christian authors and groups define family values quite different from the standard Greek and Roman view. 
So today we begin to get into the outsider's criticisms of Christianity that relate to women, that help us then to understand uh, and provide a context for the acts of Paul and Thecla's view on women. This seems to be the type of view that is criticized by outsiders. And the view of the pastoral epistles on women which seems to be trying to accommodate to some degree and adjusting to and adopting and adapting Greco-Roman family values in an attempt to actually alleviate tensions between these outsiders that are criticizing Christianity for breaking up the household. And the next episode will do more of a, an analysis of the story in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, providing a comparison and contrast on three different issues including marriage, women, and women's leadership. So I hope you enjoy this episode. So far, we've been dealing with Paul's own letters. So the living Paul writing real letters to real people in places that he has been, and in the last place, Rome, places he has not been, but at least he has contacts, social networks that have allowed him to get to know some people in Rome and to know the situation that is going there. So Romans represents our last evidence for the living Paul. It seems that Paul died sometime in the 60s CE. There are stories of him dying during the reign of Nero. And it may be the case that he died during the persecution that Nero instigated in connection with that fire that you read about. So legends and stories about Paul's death associate Paul, Paul's death with that same incident that you read about in Tacitus. The fact is we don't really know much about what happened to Paul after he wrote Romans. The Acts of the Apostles doesn't tell about his death either. Acts of the Apostles, as you know, the second half of it has as its main protagonist Paul and Paul's adventures throughout the Mediterranean world and his adventures in the Acts of the Apostles and in Rome. And he knows a bit about Paul in order to be able to write the story about Paul, but nonetheless he doesn't talk a thing about what happens to Paul after he arrives in Rome. So we've dealt with all of Paul's genuine letters. Well, at least we've dealt with most of them. So today we do move on to what I call the legacies of Paul, or how Paul is interpreted and used after he is dead and gone. There's two main things I hope you get out of today's discussion of the legacies of Paul and the discussion of some writings about Paul or claiming to be by Paul after Paul has died. On the one hand, we see a battle, in a sense, for the figure of Paul after his death. We have different followers of Jesus liking Paul and knowing of his letters, and different followers of Jesus having different opinions in their own time, struggling to have Paul as their authority, struggling to use Paul to express what they feel is important and what they feel is the right way to live in a group of Jesus followers, and what way is the right way to believe in a group of Jesus followers. So there's a bit of a struggle after Paul's death over the memory of Paul, with different people interpreting Paul in different ways and using it in struggles, in debates within Christian communities. And so that's one of the main points I hope you get out of today. And we're going to use the Acts of Paul and Thecla on the one hand, and the pastoral epistles on the other as an illustration of this struggle that goes on. The reason I've chosen those two is because on the issue of women and women's leadership, the Acts of Paul of Thecla on the one hand and the pastoral epistles on the other could not be further apart in terms of opinion. 
both written by followers of Jesus, but very far apart on the issue of what should the role of women be. However, they both claim to be representing Paul's opinion. The Oxypol and Thecla on the one hand, representing Paul's opinion by telling a story about him, a sort of novelistic story about Paul's adventures, similar to the Acts of the Apostles that you're familiar with, but maybe even more novelistic. And so it tries to draw a picture of Paul and portray a Paul with certain opinions and certain practices in a way that is contrasting to the pastoral epistles. So on the other hand is the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. How do they give a portrait of Paul? Well, they do it by pretending they're Paul. So they're letters claiming to be by Paul. They're pseudonymous letters. The term pseudonymous to mean false name is literally what it means, but it's a practice in antiquity in the Greco-Roman world for people to adopt a well-respected figure of the past persona and then to express one's own opinions using that persona of the past. Often the person who was doing that actually believed that they were representing the views of that persona accurately. They didn't think that they're twisting Paul in order to trick people. They believed that they somehow had a proper interpretation of Paul and felt that they could express Paul's opinions if he were still around. So that's what the pastoral epistles are. And they're on the other side of this battle that we're talking about. The way that they draw a picture of Paul is by writing as though they are Paul. And so in uh, Acts of Paul and Thecla on the one hand, and the pastoral epistles on the other, we get portrayals of Paul. And the portrayals are very far apart on the issue of women's leadership. The second main point I've already alluded to in what I've just said, and that is we want to get a glimpse into what's happening in the early 2nd century and in throughout the 2nd century and on, on the issue of women. Namely, there are debates and the debates are centered on what role should women play within the groups of Jesus' followers. And the debates are between people who are continuing in what used to be the general practice, informal setting where leadership arises out of charisma, out of sort of your skills and your, uh, what people perceive as gifts from God, or from the fact that you have a home and you're rich enough to let the people meet in your home. That's leadership emerges out of that, and in that context, women were leaders. So in the first century, we have plenty of examples of women in leadership positions or speaking publicly within the Jesus groups, including Pauline groups that we looked at. We had mention of women prophesying and praying in, in Corinth, and we had mention of many women in Paul's letters, Suntuke, Euodia, Phoebe, Chloe, all of these women apparently were considered authoritative to some degree within the groups of followers of Jesus. However, once you get into the second century and following, as there's an institutionalization of Christianity, as there's more of a definition of leadership, you have the gradual exclusion of women from speaking roles, from leadership roles within groups of Jesus' followers. And so the pastoral epistles represents that side of what's happening. The pastoral epistles show us an author who believes that women should not be in important leadership positions. Not only that, that women should be silent in groups of Jesus' followers. Not, to, not that they just shouldn't be leaders, but they should be silent. The Acts of Paul and Thecla, on the other hand, portrays a Paul who says to a woman, go and teach. So, should women be silent? One Paul. The other Paul, go and teach. 
This is the contrasting picture we get by looking at uh, the Acts of Paul and Thecla in the pastoral epistles. Got it set up, the two main points we have for today is uh, what's important so far. The battle for Paul and using the issue of women as an illustration of the debates and battles that are going on in the uh, attempts to sort of claim Paul's authority after he's gone. Um, So let's get into that uh, more fully now. Let me introduce to you the Acts of Paul and Thecla on the one hand, and the pastoral epistles on the other, just in terms of date, in terms of what kind of writing they are, uh, even though we've started to introduce that, and then we can get into analyzing the specific issue of women within these two different writings that portray Paul's opinions uh, on women. The pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, ended up in the New Testament. They are letters in terms of genre, but they are pseudonymous letters, as I've already mentioned. Letters written as though they are by Paul, but this is after Paul's death. And there's someone who has a feeling that they know what Paul would say if he were still around and feels that they understood what Paul was all about. And they're dealing with situations within the groups of followers of Jesus that they're involved in where they feel if Paul were around, he would not like this. And they sit down and start writing letters in the name of Paul to address real situations in their current time. And obviously, by doing so, they're drawing on the authority of Paul for their own opinions. And that's what genre we're dealing with, with the pastoral epistles. Most scholars date the pastoral epistles to the late 1st century, or even more likely, the early 2nd century CE. The Acts of Paul and Thecla is one series of stories within a document known as the Acts of Paul. The Acts of Paul is a novelistic Acts. Acts, we already have the Acts of the Apostles in the Bible. By Acts, we just mean deeds, right? The deeds of the Apostles, the actions of the Apostles. And so that becomes uh, almost like a genre within Christianity, ultimately. This idea of having the actions of the Apostles. However, in terms of where it fits, the Acts of Paul in the types of writings we have when it is written, somewhere between about 160 and 200, most likely around 160 or so CE. When it is written, it reflects most closely two things in terms of writings. One that I've mentioned, the Acts of the Apostles. The other, the novel. Greeks write novels already. So there's the genre of the novel that exists. And usually it's the story of two lovers who early on in the story, meet one another and fall in love. This is the typical story in a Greek novel of the time. The two lovers really love each other, and it looks like they're going to get together. However, they're separated from one another. And the story of a novel is usually the adventures of separated lovers, with the novel concluding with the reuniting and getting it on aspect of the story. What's interesting about the Acts of Paul and Thecla, if you've read it, is there's no sex in there. However, in fact, it turns that on its head so that it has the two lovers, put lovers in quotation marks, Paul and Thecla, and the adventures of these two figures. And these two figures beginning together in a very affectionate sort of relationship, being separated from one another, having all kinds of bad things happen to each of them while they're separated, having trouble reuniting with one another, and ultimately reuniting at the end of the story. Paul and Thecla aren't going to have sex. What is the Acts of Paul and Thecla always emphasizing? Chastity. 
It's all about you shouldn't have sex. But nonetheless, there's this relationship between Paul and Thecla. And there's a bit of a, a deliberate, I would suggest to you perhaps, play on that theme within Greek novels in the way that this novel is written. And so it's a Christian novel in a way. That isn't to say that it's all fictional. It's just impossible to know to what degree it's fictional. Mostly, probably mostly fictional. However, the figure of Thecla probably existed. So we have two quite different genres, and, uh, but they're both dating to the second century. The Acts of Paul and Thecla on the one hand and the Pastorals on the other, both from the second century, both reflecting Asia Minor, by the way. We have evidence that points to the authorship of the Acts of Paul being by a uh, church leader in Asia Minor. We know that the pastoral epistles, in the way it writes, it talks as though it's most familiar with Ephesus and places like that in Asia Minor. Interestingly, dealing with two documents, both claiming to represent Paul's opinions, both coming from Asia Minor, both from the second century. You're not always lucky in having that sort of comparative framework for dealing with things, and that's what we're doing today. So now we're getting finally into the issue of women and leadership in, in these two documents and comparing them. We get very different portraits of Paul and the realities of women's lives in the Christian communities through these two different documents. Let me give you a little bit of context, though, for this. Because central to the whole issue of why there are two different portraits of women's leadership is the perception of outsiders on the question of women within Christian communities. So group society relations, the relationship between Christian communities and Greco-Roman society is central to understanding the role of women within Christian communities and central to understanding why these debates about women's leadership are going on and central to understanding why an author like the pastoral epistles would say that women should be silent in the churches. And in contrast, why an author of the Acts of Paul and Thecla would have Paul say to a woman, go and teach. Two contrasting opinions. And they're rooted, I'm saying to you today, in the issue of how the Christian groups are relating to Greco-Roman society. Let me explain why before we get into the, each of these documents and into their opinion on women. One of the main criticisms of Christianity that we know was the case, criticisms from Greeks and Romans looking at but nonetheless, as some local people gradually get to know of the existence of these followers of Jesus, these atheists, as we know, once they start to know a little bit more about them, and once some educated people start to know about them, they start to criticize Christianity. And so once in a while, in Greek and Roman authors, we have criticisms of Christianity. And what's interesting is it's not uncommon for the issue of women to be central to these criticisms and for especially the issue of marriage and women, women in the household, to be central to these criticisms of Christianity. A scholar named Margaret MacDonald has done a lot of work on this. You can check out more about this in her book, Early Christian Women and Pagan Opinion. And so I want to read to you a couple examples of this happening in Greek and Roman authors. First of all, let me read to you Elias Aristides. Elias Aristides is a guy living in the mid-2nd century, around the 150s CE. He lives in Asia Minor, the same region as we're dealing with today, so it's even nice to be able to find someone in the exact same region. So he has heard things about followers of Jesus in some way in Asia Minor. And this is what he has to say about them. 
He's a Roman upper-class guy who's in important positions in the cities where he's active. He's criticizing both cynic philosophers and followers of Jesus simultaneously. He says this, Christians divide and upset the household and bring into collision those inside with each other and tell them the worst ways to manage their households. They never say, find, or do anything socially productive. They do not participate in festal assemblies for national gods, nor worship the gods, nor help govern the cities, nor comfort the sorrowing, nor make reconciliation with those of opposing persuasions, nor arouse the young, or anyone else for that matter, to the affairs of the world. The point is, look at this criticism. Christians find the worst ways to manage their households. They upset the household. We're soon going to have in the Acts of Paul and Thecla a very clear illustration of Jesus' followers who think you should upset the household. In the pastoral epistles, we're soon going to have a picture of a Paul who says you should not upset the household, who agrees with alias Aristides, so to speak. Let me read you another Greek or Roman opinion about Christians, and this one relates to women more specifically. This one is by Celsus. Celsus wrote somewhat extensively a criticism of the Christians, also in second century. He's not from Asia Minor necessarily. And uh, we only have his writings as a result of an attack against the writings of Celsus. So Celsus criticized Christianity, and then Oregon wrote a writing criticizing Celsus's criticism of Christianity. But in the process, he quoted extensively from Celsus's work, which is lost. But here are some of the quotations that relate to women here. So this is an outsider's opinion about what's bad about Christianity. And it will impact our understanding of the group society relations issue and how it relates to women's leadership. This is what Celsus is saying. The Christian's injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us as evils. He's pretending he's a Christian talking. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. End of the mocking quotation of what a Christian would say. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and little children. They're just a bunch of women. A bunch of stupid women is an opinion here being expressed. Look at further down what Kelsa says. Remember that he's an upper-class guy, similar to the attitudes of Tacitus and that, who looked down upon the religious practice of the populace generally. Remember that? Tacitus and Pliny and that looked down on the populace generally. So they would feel free to talk like this about the populace. But here it just happens to be the targets are Christian groups within the populace. So on top of it, they're sort of foreign atheistic groups and they're a bunch of lower class. So there's this upper class sort of snobbery going on here. But nonetheless, let me quote another thing from Celsus about the Christians. In private houses also we see wool workers, cobblers, laundry workers, and the most illiterate and bucolic yokels who would not dare to say anything at all in front of their elders and more intelligent masters. But whenever they get hold of children in private and some stupid women with them, they let out some astounding statements as, for example, that they must not pay any attention to their father and school teacher. So the criticism here is that the Christian groups are illegitimate, partly because stupid women are so prevalent. And stupid women who are teaching that you shouldn't listen to your father. That's how he finishes, right? So back to the household, this idea of Christians breaking up the household and not living according to the Greek and Roman standards of what a household should be. 
and going against the Greek and Roman standards to some degree of how social relations should work and what the position of women should be. It's indicating a perception of the Christian groups not always having the same mores, not always having the same norms for what women can and can't do. It's part of the criticism of outsiders when they look at Christianity. Is look at these Christian groups, a bunch of women, they let women do whatever they want, so to speak. We'll soon see that not all Christian groups are letting women do whatever they want, but this is one of the criticisms of outsiders who know of, perhaps, Christian groups like the ones behind the Acts of Paul and Thecla. These are criticisms of the types of things we do see in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, of the type of Christianity reflected in the Acts of Paul and Thecla. However, these authors are not criticizing the sort of thing we see in the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles seem to be adapting to this criticism, trying to address it in a different way by actually adopting similar ideas about the role of women and the uh, position of the household in, in the Christian groups. What we're claiming, though, is the types of criticisms we're seeing in these Greek and Roman authors may be the types of criticisms that are going on on the ground when, when the author is writing. The pastoral epistles we'll soon see may be an attempt to alleviate tensions between insiders and outsiders on various points, one of them being the issue of women and the position of women. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music of this podcast is my own remix of Brian Eno and David Byrne's Help Me Somebody from My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, copyright 1981, None Such Records, with an Uzbek vocal sample by Savara Nazarkhan from her song Kunlarim, copyright 2007, Real World Music. Both are used with permission under Creative Commons type licenses.